Hi, Southbrook. Um, uh, I, I just want to say it's been really good to be with you uh, for a little bit this summer. It's been uh, a source of joy to me and a source of kind of life uh, this summer. And so I just want to say that out loud that I've been grateful to be able to be here with you a little bit this summer. Uh, next week is when Charlie comes back from his uh, break. So things will kind of resume regular programming. But uh, just from my side of things, uh, it has definitely been a joy to be with you a little bit uh, this summer. We are in a long series that has kind of a mini-series inside of it. We're even looking at the short letters that are in the Bible. And the last kind of several weeks, these super short letters that are inside of a great big fat letter called Revelation. Um, And I don't know if you know much about Revelation, but there's a lot of weird movies based on it. Uh, and several weird religions uh, also based on it. it. It has all this stuff in it that's mysterious to us that people read and find meaning in. And so anytime that I'm doing anything that has anything to do with the book of Revelation, uh, there's a few things that I always feel compelled to just uh, say out loud and to give as a resource to people. Uh, one is that if you have ideas or you want to explore this book a little bit more, one really good resource that I go back to time and time again Uh, It's called Breaking the Code by Dr. Bruce Metzger. Uh, And even though it's like a, it's sort of a textbook, but it's actually like less than 100 pages. And it's a super helpful book. And it'll tell you exactly when the world's going to end and how. So you're going to want to get, you're going to want to get your, get your hands on it. Uh, It's coming soon to a theater near you, directed by Kirk Cameron. Um, It's not, that's, that's a joke. Uh, It's mostly for me, but I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, It's actually, it's just a super helpful book. So if you've always been curious about Revelation, it's a a really helpful one. One of the things that's helpful to me every time I look at Revelation is the thing that I was taught. Uh, If you don't know, there's all this kind of wild stuff in there, these visions that John gets uh, from the the source of Jesus. He gets all these visions that includes like monsters and dragons and war and pestilence and the prediction of all these things that are going to come. And there's all these symbols and numbers and all these names of things in it and Uh, I was always taught that when you're reading Revelation, it's important to remember that there are three different things happening in that book, that some of the predictions are about things that were going to happen in the near future of the people who were reading it or hearing it for the first time. So there are things that are in our past. They already happened uh, in these cities uh, or in in time. Uh, But also some of them are about things that are going to happen in the distant future of those readers and of us. But also most of it is about the kind of stuff that is always happening that it's this thing called apocalyptic literature that's an unveiling. It means that somebody is pulling back the curtain on the way the world works and showing us what's going on uh, behind the curtain uh, of the universe and of the world and of the human heart. And so that's just a super helpful thing to me, that sometimes we're reading about things that may or may not happen in in our future, but we're always reading about something that is uh, always happening, that is a present reality, that even when we look at stuff, as we look at this, I think everybody who's taught in this series has made a point to say, These letters were to specific cities and churches and communities, but they're also things that are true all time for all humans. And I think we'll see that as we look at the letter uh, to Sardis here today. Another important thing that, again, I just, I always feel like it's important to say when we talk about this book, is that the people who first encountered the book of Revelation, this vision, they would not have sat and studied it and gone over all the numbers and letters and crazy dragons and monsters. They would not have tried to decode it. They would have just come to a room like this and listened. Um, because they had this, this thing called an attention span. I don't, you have to look it up later. Um, Wikipedia it and then 
look at 10 things after that that have nothing to do with it because that's what we do, right? But they would come to a room like this and just listen to somebody read pages and pages of a story. And it would have been more for them like, like going to see a sci-fi movie or like binge-watching Stranger Things season three. Like that's how they would have experienced it. This has this kind of oral performance. They would have heard it. And they wouldn't have sat and gone, now what does 666 mean? What is that number? They would have known all the symbols because they were in their culture. They understood all the references. And what it would have felt like to them would have been chapters and chapters and hours and hours of hearing painful things, of hearing about dragons and monsters and chaos and war and pestilence and, and horsemen and tragedy and turmoil and lakes of fire. And then in the final minute, peace. And they would have heard that someday there's going to be a city with a river that runs through it and it's going to be lit up all the time. And there's going to be no danger there and no tears and there's just going to be nearness of God and of each other. And so they would have heard all this fearful, awful stuff and then they would have felt like hope. And if you ever hear a teaching, again, this is the thing I always say when I talk about Revelation. If you ever hear a teaching on Revelation that makes you feel afraid, you're hearing a false teaching on Revelation because it's supposed to make you feel hopeful. It's supposed to be about the victory of Jesus. Um, and anything else is less than the truth of Revelation. Now, in order to understand that, a thing that's fun to do uh, is to read it out loud. To read it out loud to yourself or pay a guy 20 bucks, come into your house, <laughs> read you the book of Revelation. Um, I've done this a couple times. I don't know if you can tell, but I know how to have a good time. And <laughs> so I've done this a couple times where I've just had an afternoon and I have read the book of Revelation out loud. And it is the clearest, truest, most hopeful thing to do it that way, uh, as opposed to dissecting and, and building a timeline out of it. Uh, when you hear it this way, you get it. Like, you understand what it is to be a person and to be close to God in a different way. So, there you go. Next Saturday night, uh, have a real party and read Revelation out loud to your friends. Now, uh, I, uh, what I realized in looking, getting ready for this weekend is that I actually spoke on this very text a few years ago. I'm sure you guys remember it. Um, and no, you don't. You don't remember this. You won't know it tomorrow. Um, I used this letter to Sardis. We were doing a movie series, and we were talking about the World War Z. Anybody remember? It's a movie about zombies. And so I used this passage because it's a little bit about zombies. Uh, if you're new here visiting, sometimes you come in and we talk about zombies. Um, and we're only going to do that a little bit this weekend. But what was fascinating about using a text that I'd used a few years ago is that I just, I heard it totally differently. Uh, and I understood the passage totally differently. Because one of the things is scripture provides us all this wisdom, all this goodness, all this truth stuff. But sometimes it doesn't give us any hint as to the tone of the letter. Right? We're, we're basing this series on text messages. And sometimes it's hard to convey tone in text messaging. Have you ever sent a text message and then hours later had to send another text message that said, that was a joke? <laughs> Have you ever had, to, ever had to do that? That's like my whole life right there. But that's particularly true in text messaging, right? Because we can't always convey tone. Now, uh, the, the youths, they've come up with this thing to convey tone, right? They have the GIF GIFs. Um, nobody knows how to say it, so the GIF GIFs, right? So that they can show images and there's movement and it communicates layers and stuff like that. So they can add tone by sending just the right GIF GIF. Now, as a Gen Xer, when I send a GIF GIF, I have to also send a follow-up essay on what the GIF GIF <laughs> was meant to convey. Right? 
Tone is tricky, and I want to show you what I meant, because I believe that the last time I talked about this, when I read this letter, I heard it. It's the voice of God coming through Jesus to John, and I think I read it as really angry. Let me read it that way. See what you think. Let me try and channel like my Sunday morning TV preacher. They're always, they're super mad. Um, (laughs) To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Maybe you know by now in the series that all these letters have some description of Jesus that addresses that community. Seven is just the perfect number. This is what this is saying, the whole spirit of God, the seven stars, the whole universe, the perfect number. That's why 666 is perfectly imperfect. Uh, It's the number of just total incompleteness. Um, But read that book and you'll get it. Uh, I know your works. You have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is on the point of death, for I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have heard, received and heard. Obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Yet you have still a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. If you conquer, you'll be clothed like them in white robes and I will not blot your name out of the book of life. I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. That's one way to read that. Everybody feel better? I read it this week, and I thought, what if? What if I got the tone wrong? What if there was any compassion in what Jesus had to say to the churches? I know your works. You have a name of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen whatever remains and is on the point of death. For I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. Remember what you've received and heard. Obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you won't know at what hour I'll come to you. Yet you have still a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. If you conquer, you will be clothed like them in white robes, and I will not blot your name out of the book of life. I'll confess your name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Does that that feel different? What if? Both readings might be a little bit right, right? Maybe God sometimes is frustrated that we're walking around where there's all this life and we're dead inside. But what if God also has compassion for us and just wants us to strengthen whatever remains? Let us think a little bit about the city of Sardis. There's some stuff that's helpful to know. Uh, It was a super busy and industrial city. They found a lot of work to do. And because they did so much good work and because they were so busy, uh, they had wealth. And because they were so busy and wealthy and industrious, uh, they had a problem. All that busyness and all that invention and all that busy good work uh, led to them having a lack of vigilance. And so twice they found themselves unprepared uh, for the hard things that happened to them. They had an earthquake come 
and they lost a lot of stuff, but they just got more busy and more industrious and built up more wealth to get ready for the next time that that happened. But they weren't vigilant enough because eventually the Persians attacked them and they lost everything. Now, I don't know if you knew that about Sardis, but here's what I bet you do know already. You understand something about Sardis. Here's the thing about them. They knew defeat, but they kept pretending that they didn't. The way it works in humanity, right, is that a few people kind of act away, and then that becomes the way that a lot of people act. And so entire churches, entire neighborhoods, entire cities can take on these traits, right? And so you can write a collective letter because everybody in Sardis is going around pretending like everything's fine, and they're not vigilant about the danger of, of death and defeat and grief that is around them. And so all of a sudden, they have become a whole group of people who just walk around like everything is fine. We don't know defeat. An earthquake can never get the best of us. The Persians can never get the best of us. They knew defeat, but they pretended like they didn't. And it turned them into zombies. We ought to hear this letter collectively and personally. I honestly believe this letter right now is, is a keen letter for what is happening in the church. The churches right now need to be very aware of what is really alive and what is really dying around them. That this letter is the same, that it is a great gift to be able to discern where is their life and where is their death. I sat with a pastor friend of mine. Uh, she pastors down in Cincinnati on, on University of Cincinnati's campus. And we were just talking about church stuff over tea. She's from Australia. And if you're having a hard talk, you have tea with it. And we were kind of talking about just what it's like to try to be doing ministry and do good and be a Christian in the world these days. And she says that everybody who's in ministry right now ought to be spending part of their time as a hospice worker and part of their time as a midwife. That they ought to spend half their time attending to things that are dying and understand that it's dying. And that they ought to spend half of their time figuring out what is new, what's God doing, what can we bring to life, what can be born out of this. And I think she's right on. I've been thinking about it ever since we had that tea. I've been just thinking about it. And, and then I, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, this is so accurate for what the church is going through right now, but also it is just life. It's just all people, all time. That half of our time is spent kind of keeping vigil over things that are probably dying. But we have to find some way that we're spending time with life. Um, I want to tell a story. I, I don't remember. I think I told this when we were doing the Liberty Campus, but I don't know if I've ever told it here. It's one of my favorite, like, stories out of literature. It's by George Orwell. It's called Shooting an Elephant. And it's the kind of story that's haunted me for a long time. As you may know, if something haunts me, I also want it to haunt everybody else. That's how I operate. So it's been haunting me. And it's the story of this guy who years ago uh, worked for the British Empire in uh, Burma, a tiny like rural village in, in Burma that's now called Myanmar. And he was a representative of the, of the empire in this tiny little village. And so he was the only person in the village with a gun. And so there's rumors in the village that there's an elephant stampeding. And so all the villagers are upset, and they want the one guy with the gun, the representative of the empire, they want him to do the powerful thing and to shoot the elephant. And there's all this kind of conflicting, uh, like, purposes of what that could do, right? Because some of the people are just hungry, and they think, oh, if we shoot this elephant, we'll get to eat for a while. Some of them are afraid because there's rumors that this elephant has stampeded and has stomped on somebody and that they're all in danger. But the, the guy who's the empire guy, he understands that elephants, if they're tamed and if they can get this elephant to calm down, he could be super useful and he could be a good resource and they wouldn't have to deal with the carcass and it would be less messy to keep this elephant alive. And so he goes back and forth about what to do. 
Finally, under pressure, he goes and he gets his empire-issued gun. And spoiler alert, it's right there in the title, he shoots the elephant. But elephants, hard to kill with a gun, especially if you don't know exactly where to shoot them. So he doesn't, elephant doesn't really die. It just kind of sits in the village and it bleeds and it suffers and it, it gasps for, for life for hours. So he goes and he gets another kind of gun and he brings it back and he tries to shoot the elephant again, but he doesn't, he doesn't really know how to effectively kill the elephant. And he can't stand to watch the elephant suffer in the streets. And so he just goes home and waits for news that the elephant has died. And the ending line is, is beautiful. If you ever studied it in English class or if you go home and look at it, it's just a short story. The ending line is beautiful. He says something like, nobody would ever know just what lengths we'll go to to not look like a fool. That he had taken this elephant down and done this ridiculous thing and done it ineffectively and that his whole motivation was just so people wouldn't think he was a fool. And if you study it in English class, that's, the point of the, that's one of the points of the story. But the more I think about it, the more I think, oh, it is this great story about just what it is to have giant, bleeding, suffering elephants in our living rooms and in our cities and in our hearts and our minds, these things that we just can't kill, where we just had a lack of vigilance and something is, is dying, but we don't know what to do about it. We don't know how to quit the habit. We don't know how to quiet the voice. We don't know how to change our life. We don't know how to be the person that we want to be. We just have these dying elephants in the room. And it also made me think about another thing that I know I have talked about up here. It's a real greatest hit session. But uh, Barbara Brown Taylor is one of my favorite writers, and she gave me this idea in one of her books that I do on a regular basis. Uh, it's just a spiritual practice for me as I make a list. And on one side of the list, I put, here are the things that make me feel more alive. And on the other side of the list, I put, here's why I'm not doing them. Right? And I get to see it in print. Here are the, here's the life. Right? Here's where I could be a midwife. Here's, where I'm, here's why I'm being a hospice worker more times, right? Here are the dying elephants. Here's the things I'm spending my time on where I could be spending them over here, right? And we get to where we can't tell death from life anymore. What keeps you alive? What makes you feel alive? When do you feel close to God? And what is on that list of here's why I'm not doing that? I read a thing. I've read it before. It's from uh, a guy I read all the time, Frederick Buechner, but... I read it this week, and it just seemed just right uh, for this weekend. He was talking about, why, why, are, why are we all here? Why, why did you guys come to church this morning? It's beautiful out there. What are we, what are we doing in here? He says, why do, you come, why do people come to church? And he said, I don't think it's because, I don't think we come here to meet God. And, you know, you got to kind of sit with that, right? Like he says, I, th- I think we probably know that we could, God's out there too, right? And some of you kind of say that, I, I think I, experience God at the lake or with my kids or coffee with a friend. I think God's there, right? He said, I don't know if we come here to meet God. He said, I think we come to church because it gives us a chance to visit with a different version of ourselves, right? We come here and we think, maybe this will be the week. Maybe this will be the week that God feels close to me. Maybe this will be the week that I'll get up and I'll pray or I'll, I'll read Revelation out loud to myself like a weirdo. Maybe this will be the week that I'm, I'm a little less selfish. Maybe this is the week that I, I give something away, that I serve my city, I serve my neighborhood. Maybe this will be the week that the, the, the fruit of the Spirit will come to life in me. This will be the week that I'll feel love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. This will be the week. And we visit with a version of ourselves 
that's on that list of more alive than dead. This will be the week I slay that elephant effectively. And I think we know that, that the word that we might use for that, the word that we might use for this idea that we could, we could be a little more like Jesus this week, the spirit could move in us, could be alive in us a little bit more, the word we use for that is, is hope, of course. And what I love about Revelation is, again, you go through all these monsters, you go through all these horrible things, and then you land on hope. There's all these words on all these awful things, and then there's this final good word that is peace and love and joy and light. One of the things I do when I teach Revelation in, in classrooms or with students or small groups or whatever is I have them just like, let's just make a list together of all the awful things in the world. And we use dry erase board or chalkboard and we make this big, awful, horrible list. All right, we put all the things up there. We put racism and sexism and ageism, all the things that we've done so much to each other, we had to give it a name, right? And we put it all up there and we put cancer up there and we put disease up there, we put poverty and we put violence, we put all the wars that are breaking out, we put all that stuff up on the board. And then I read to them the last couple chapters of Revelation and while I'm reading it, I'm, I'm also erasing the thing and then they open their eyes and we experience what it would be like if those things weren't real, if we were doing our part to erase that board and to bring hope to life. So it's true for us collectively. I want us to hear that as humanity, that that's a part of what this letter and this story and what it could look like to, to strengthen whatever remains. The way that we get there, I think, is this thing. I actually talked about it last time I was up a few weeks ago, that, that when we come to the scripture, we pay attention to the verbs, right? That even in a book like Revelation, where it's got all this confusing stuff, there are verbs there that will not let us go. Right? What am I supposed to do about this thing? I'm supposed to wake up. I'm supposed to strengthen what remains. I'm supposed to remember, what is it I think about who God is and who I am and what Jesus was like and what the Spirit might be up to? I'm supposed to remember that. I'm supposed to obey that. I'm supposed to repent if I'm falling short of that. I am supposed to conquer, and I'm supposed to listen. And when I bring that to life, when I operate on the verbs, I'm bringing hope to life. There's a, a passage that I just keep kind of circling around these days. It, it comes from Romans 5. Again, it's a passage I've read my whole life that just this year has meant something to me that it didn't uh, before. But it just says that hope does not disappoint us. It says God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that was given to us. Right? The Spirit that is over all the seven churches and over all time and over all of us. Hope does not disappoint us. There's another translation that says hope does not put us to shame. I've always had this like secret fear that hope would someday be embarrassing, right? That if I, if I believe that things could be better, that I could be better, if I sit here and I visit with a version of myself and then I leave here and I try to be that other version of myself, if I believe God could be closer to me and the spirit could be alive in me, that will someday be embarrassing. But it says hope will not put you to shame. I want to just finish with a story because um, I hear that, honestly, I'm not a person who in, enjoys hope that much. <laughs> I'm not a person for whom hope is a thing that I talk about lightly. And I would hear this and be like, oh, that sounds polished and fluffy and like not my life, right? I don't, I don't have hope. I, I want you to know it doesn't come easy to me. And I just want to tell you um, a, a story. Uh, some of you, if you know me, if you've ever heard my life or you know anything about me, even from up here, 
uh, then you know that I grew up with a sister uh, who was diagnosed with breast cancer, lived with it for a couple years, and then passed away uh, at the age of 34. And my sister and her husband had a dog uh, named Daisy, who a lot of times during my sister's like treatment and therapy, uh, she stayed at my parents' house. And so when my sister Chris passed away, uh, the dog stayed with my parents. Like it just, it was kind of a last gift from her. And honestly, taking care of the dog became kind of their last act of parenthood uh, to my sister. And so this dog was a super important dog to them. And, it, and she actually lived for a very long time. But last spring, uh, it was clear that it was the dog's time to go. She got really sick just all of a sudden. And so we were losing Daisy. We were losing this dog. And if you know anything about grief, the way it works is that it compounds. So the loss of a dog was a re-loss of my sister, right? Is you open up a wound and then there's a wound under that and a wound under that. And so it was this compounded grief. And so we're, we're working that out. And it's in the middle of this season, honestly, for my family that just feels like it's all about loss. My parents are getting older and they're losing things. They're losing parts of themselves that they miss. They're losing their ability to go do, to go do some things. You know, they're losing some of their their freedom and their sense of self and their health and all that stuff. So it's just this season of just loss after loss after loss after loss. And we could have filled a board with the things that it felt like we were grieving and losing as we lost Daisy. And I don't know what you do when you're in a season like that, but I decided that I was going to mow the grass. <laughs> that, that was going to make everything better. I was going to go to their house and do all the yard work, right, and clean stuff and fix stuff, and that's going to make everything better. That's going to resurrect Daisy, right, somehow. And... In the course of doing that, uh, of, I had to go to the gas station to get gas for the mower, and I put my, I have this ring that I wear every day, and I put it in my pocket, and the ring uh, belonged to my sister. I don't know if it was important to her at all, but it became very important to me uh, to wear every day. And in the middle of doing all this yard work, I had like put my hand in my pocket or something and lost it. And I just thought, Really? <laughs> Like, if this was a movie, that would be too much. They would say, that's too much. That's not even realistic that you could have all these things happen at one time. And I was trying to, like, hide it from my parents. But I finally just had to say, I think sometime while I was mowing in the yard, I lost this, this ring that was Chris's, and I wear it every day, and I don't know what to do. And I think the easiest explanation is that I lost it at the gas station as I was getting my card out of my pocket. So I think I'll drive up to the gas station. My mom goes, you're too upset. Don't go by yourself. Take your dad with you. And so she's trying to fix stuff too, right? So... I, when my dad and I head to the car, and she says, you guys go, and I'll look in the yard. And I think, she's not going to find that ring. I just cut all that grass. She's not going to find it. I've seen Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, right? <laughs> no, it's a wild jungle in there. Right? She's never going to find this ring. And my dad and I head to the car, and I think that's my only hope. There's, hope is probably lost. It's probably gone for good, and it's one more thing. And my mom, as we're getting into the car, she yells, she looks in the yard for like five seconds and says, found it. <laughs> she found that ring. Uh, and I, you probably know the story. At the end of this story, uh, we basically just stood in the yard and cried for a long time. <laughs> Kinda, I don't know what to do about that. And it was just this, this little reminder, right? Remember. It was this reminder that God has wired the world in such a way that you can have a lot of loss. But all it takes is a little bit of foundness. Right? Jesus knows all it takes in a world of death and decay and loss and grief is just a little bit of resurrection to change the whole story. 
wake up. Strengthen whatever remains in you. Remember it. Obey it. Repent. Conquer. Listen. Hope will never embarrass you. It will never put you to shame. Hear this compassionate voice of God. That if we will walk, if we'll obey the verbs, if we'll pay attention, if we'll keep the vigil, that you'll just be walking in a field someday and all of a sudden we'll find a kingdom. Would you pray with me? God, we come to you as people who could write a long list of things that are hard. Hard about being people, hard about being people together. We have a long list of places where it is hard to hope. We come to you knowing that we have elephants in our living rooms, in our minds, in our churches, in our cities. We come to you hoping that there are also things that could be brought to life. God, I pray that we would listen today. That we would hear what your spirit is saying to the church. God, wherever we have fallen asleep, wake us up. Help us even now to strengthen whatever hope we can muster. Help us, God, to be the kind of people who remember, who obey, who aren't afraid to repent. Help us to be the kind of people who eventually conquer. God, help us to be people who walk around like we live in the book of life. Our names are being held there. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.